Well, if you have your Bible with you tonight, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. You might want to keep your Bible handy tonight as we'll be looking at some verses together as we go through the final three sections of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And if you want to turn with me in the back of your hymnal as well, to page 924, excuse me, 925, chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator. We'll read the final three sections, sections 6, 7, and 8. We're going to be getting a little bit of help uh, from... Chad Van Dixhorn's book on the uh, Westminster Confession uh, tonight, and so we appreciate his work. Let's pray together, and then we'll read. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our lesson tonight. Pray that it be instructive, helping us to understand Jesus better. May, Lord, we come to know him better, and may our love increase for him. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. First Timothy, chapter 2, verse 5. First Timothy, chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And then, reading from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator, starting at section number 6. Although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively, from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices, wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman, which should bruise the serpent's head, and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, being yesterday and today the same and forever. Section 7. Christ, in the work of mediation, acts according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. And that's going to need a lot of explanation. (laughs) Section 8 To all those for whom Christ hath purchased redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them and revealing unto them in and by the word the mysteries of salvation, effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey and governing their hearts by his word and spirit overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways 
as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. Well, we're going to finish this chapter, God willing, tonight on the subject of Jesus as our mediator. Now, these last three paragraphs, as I read, are not easy to understand. So I want to break them down and make them as simple and plain as I know how. And then I want us to see it also from the Scripture. We need to realize that the Bible is our final authority in life and practice. The Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechisms are those documents that we believe to be the best expression of what the Bible teaches, but we always want to go back to the Scriptures like the Bereans. So the first question that we take up here from section 6 is really, to put it most simply, were the Old Testament saints, that is, boys and girls, people who lived in the Old Testament, some of you have Old Testament names, don't you? Were they saved? And if they were saved and going to heaven, how were they saved? Were they saved the same way that people in the New Testament are saved? Well, we want to talk about that. And the short answer is yes, they were. Why were people in the Old Testament, the famous names that we read in the Bible who believed in God, why and how were they saved? Well, they are saved really, essentially, just like you and me. They are saved through faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, this, of course, raises questions. One, of course, is how can somebody be saved by Jesus Christ if they lived sometimes a couple thousand years before Christ ever came into this world? How can Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Solomon and Isaiah and all the others, how can they believe in Jesus when historically Jesus had not yet come into the world? Well, that's what section number six is telling us here in the Westminster Confession. Again, I'll read. It says, although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, that means that at what moment was the salvation of all God's people finished? It was finished at the moment that Jesus died on that cross and then was raised bodily from the dead three days later. That's why Jesus said on that cross, before he gave up his spirit on the cross, he said, it is finished. And so it was at that historical moment, 2,000 years ago, that Jesus purchased the salvation of Moses, the salvation of Isaiah, the salvation of David, the salvation of Solomon, even though Moses, David, Solomon, Isaiah all lived sometimes several thousand years before Jesus. Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus. But so they were saved at, um, at the same moment in terms of the efficacy of that salvation. When was a redemption accomplished? At the moment Christ dies for his people. So what the confession here is saying is that even though it was the actual moment of redemption was not accomplished until after Jesus comes into this world, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof, meaning all that Jesus accomplished on the cross, all the benefits were communicated 
unto the elect in all ages, past, present, and future. Even people who are yet to be born generations from now who are one day will be in heaven, people who live in the, the 2100s, the 2200s, 2300s, however long history goes on, they are saved by Christ on the moment he died, just like we are. And it is true of people who lived in the Old Testament. Now, but notice what the confession says, because we still have to deal with the question, how can you believe in the Savior, Jesus Christ, when he wasn't fully known yet? He wasn't revealed to the world in his fullness yet. What the confession here is saying is that if you read there, it says, by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed. Now, what are the promises? Well, the promises would be those things such as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where Adam and Eve, you know, they sinned against God in the garden. God removes them from the garden. But what does he do? He gives them the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Who's the seed of the woman? Well, that's the promise of Jesus and his work on the cross. <clears throat> now, is that as full an understanding as what you know? Is that as full of an understanding as John three sixteen? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. No, but that was the gospel that Adam and Eve had. They didn't have John 3.16, but they had Genesis 3.15. That was their big verse, right? That was the verse they had, and they believed, we trust, in that promise that God would send a Savior who would crush the head of the evil one, Satan. And we know that that person is Jesus Christ. <clears throat> what about the types? What's a type? Well, a type was anything that pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. So any of the ordinances or any of the washings or any of the sacrifices that involved blood, all of those pointed to Jesus Christ. So they didn't have uh, the Gospel of John. They didn't have Romans. They didn't have Ephesians. But they did have the book of Leviticus. They had the book of Deuteronomy. They had the law. They had the prophets, and the law and the prophets, Jesus tells us, spoke of Jesus. They spoke of Christ. Isaiah, in chapter 53, the chapter we today call the suffering servant chapter, spoke of Jesus' substitutionary atonement. So they did see Christ, but they saw Jesus, boys and girls, if you can think here figuratively, at a distance. You ever been to the beach? And what do you see at the beach that you can't see around here? Well, you can see a long way away, can't you? Now, if you go out west, sometimes you can see great distances. But here we have a lot of hills and mountains and trees. But if you go to the beach, you can see far, far distances. Sometimes you can have maybe mom and dad are taking a walk. You're playing at the, with your siblings making sandcastles and such, but you can tell that's mom and that's dad a far distance away, walking together on the beach. You recognize maybe the way they walk or maybe you recognize what dad's wearing. 
at the beach. And you know that that's mom and dad way out there. In the same way, the people who lived in the Old Testament times could see Christ. But they saw him from a far vantage, a long way off. And they saw Christ in the types and in the sacrifices and in the promises. But they could see him by faith. And that which they could see, they trusted in. And so Adam and Eve were saved just like you and me. They put their faith in the promise of God's word. Look with me. Um, for example, uh, let's go to Romans chapter 4. I, I love Romans chapter 4. I love the whole book of Romans. I've preached more from Romans than I've ever preached in any book uh, because I preached not only four years in this church, I preached six years or, uh, in, at the college <laughs> in the book of Romans. So it is my go-to book. But <clears throat> you see this point in Romans chapter 4, I think very clearly. Look at Romans chapter 4 and verse 1. Now, just to let you know where we are in Romans, Paul has been saying that there's a great problem with sin, but uh, God has provided a solution for sin in Jesus Christ. You see that in Romans 3.21? But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets. That is, Jesus Christ has been revealed... And now the question is, well, what about the Old Testament people? How are they saved? So look at chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. That is, Paul is saying, look, we believe Abraham is our father. He's speaking as a Jew. And he says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And then he quotes here from Genesis. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as what? His righteousness. That is, Abraham believed the promise of God. God had said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I'm going to give you a great number of descendants. And they're not all going to be physical descendants. Galatians tells us that this promise is also fulfilled by what? The Spirit of God taking people like you and me who are Gentiles by nature and making us children of Abraham by faith. But what is the point here that Paul's making in Romans 4? He is saying that Abraham was what? Justified through faith alone in Christ alone. The Old Testament taught the same doctrine as the New Testament. Don't think that the Old Testament is teaching a different way of salvation than the New. The Old Testament is teaching, in its essence, the same exact doctrine of salvation as the New Testament. It's just that the New Testament is explaining it far more fully and clearly. You've heard me use this illustration before. I'll use it again. You should think of the Bible and the revelation of God's grace, like you think of a flower, and you maybe like a tulip, let's call it a tulip. <laughs> you plant the bulb, and what do you get first? You get the stem, right? And then, as the stem grows, finally you get 
the flower itself. In the same way, in the Bible, it's, the, it's all the same. The Old Testament and the New Testament are the same flower of salvation. The stem might be thought of, though, as the Old Testament. But there is an organic unity to the stem and the bud. In the same way, we find in the Old Testament or in the Old Covenant with the New. Abraham was part of the Old Covenant, but he is still in the covenant of grace. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. How do you become righteous? You and I become righteous through faith and trust in Jesus. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, what happens? Your sins are forgiven, and God credits to your account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How is Abraham going to stand in the day of judgment? He is going to stand by way of the righteousness of Christ that was imputed to him. How is Moses standing? Moses stands by the righteousness of Christ. What do you find at the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus is standing on the mountain. Who's standing next to him? Two Old Testament saints, Moses and Elijah. What is that telling us? The only way into the promised land for Old Testament saints was through Christ. They are standing next to Jesus. Jesus is Moses' Savior. Jesus is Elijah's Savior. They stand just like you and I stand through faith in Christ. That's what Paul's saying here in Romans 4. If you jump down to verse 10, and he also cites David there in verse 6, but I'm going to skip that. But look at verse 10. How then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? That is, was Abraham obeying the Mosaic law? Is that how he became righteous? And the point is, no, he lived before the Mosaic law. He was uncircumcised until God commanded him to be circumcised, and he did that only after he put his trust in the Lord. So what the Westminster Confession of Faith is saying is that Jesus is our mediator. He stands between us and God. He is our representative to God. He is God's representative to us. But Jesus is the mediator of all of God's people, all forever, all in the past, in the present, today, and also in the future that is to come. Jesus is the mediator of the entire elect people of God. And so we are saved. All of us will boast in the final day in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus himself said that Abraham saw my day, boys and girls, going back to that beach analogy, from a distance. And he rejoiced in that day. And so we see here that the Old Testament saints were saved just like us. Now, let's move on to the next section here. This is probably the hardest section in this chapter to understand. Maybe it's one of the hardest to understand in the whole confession. But let's do our best to understand it here. The next section here is telling us that Jesus, your mediator, has two distinct natures. Now, boys and girls, we've gone over this again and again and again. Okay, You've heard me say it many times. Jesus is 
one person, but he has two natures. What are those two natures? He is truly divine, truly God, and he is truly man. All right, that part you know, but that's not the hard part. (laughs) Here comes the hard part. Let's look at section seven. Christ, in the work of mediation, that is what Jesus does as our mediator, acts according to both natures. That is, Jesus as the mediator functions as one who is truly God and truly man. And notice here the confession says, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Meaning that Jesus in his divine nature does everything that God does. And Jesus in his human nature does everything that his human nature is supposed to do. These two natures are never mixed or confused. Yet, the confession goes on. By reason of the unity of the person, that is, by way of Jesus, in his own person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. All right. You say, okay, pastor, that just lost me here. Well, let's, let's rely on Chad Van Dixorn here, right? When it gets complicated, go to the big boys and see what they have to say. It's always safer. So Chad Van Dixorn, who has now just been announced a new professor at RTS. Yay, another one for RTS. Uh, Chad Van Dixorn says this, it, it is not the human nature of Christ that saves us, nor is it the divine nature of Christ that saves us. Now that might strike you as, whoa, wait a minute. Pastor, did you just fall into heresy? No, let me read it again. It is not the human nature of Christ that saves us, nor is it the divine nature of Christ that saves us. But listen closely now. He says, no, it is Christ himself in his person, acting according to both natures, who is our Savior and deliverer. What what Dr. Van Dixhorn is saying is that you are saved by the whole person of Jesus Christ, the whole Christ, who is God and man in one person. So it's not just the human nature that saves you. It's not just Jesus as God who saves you. It's Jesus as Jesus, who is God and man in one person, who saves us here. We have to remember the unity of the person. Dr. Van Dixhorn says that the incarnation cannot be comprehended. That is, to put it simply, boys and girls, you will spend the rest of your life trying to think about Jesus being both God and man, and you will never exhaust that topic. You can spend, you can do nothing else with your life, but think about that one subject of how the eternal Son of God became man, and you will, you will constantly be running into a wall in your mind of mystery. How can it be? that we sing that song. How can it be that my God should save me as a man? How can he be God 
and man. Dr. Van Dixhorn says there is no analogy to the incarnation. So be aware of anybody who tries to give you an analogy of either the Trinity or of the incarnation. A lot of people, listen, especially with the Trinity, they try to say, oh, I know the analogy. It's, it's uh, water, ice, and steam. No, that, it, that's a bad analogy. That's heresy. All right, so there, there, that, the, the point is there is nothing analogous to the being of God. Um, there is this gulf between our understanding and who God is. The gulf is not always because of sin either. The gulf will always be there because he is infinite and eternal. We, by nature, even without sin, when we are in glory, we will still, even though we'll be without sin, we will still be finite. And, and that, that finite knowledge, think of it as an island surrounded by water will always be there. Now your knowledge of the infinite God may grow in history and in eternity. But as Dr. Richard Pratt points out, the more that island of knowledge grows, the more your understanding of God grows, so does the perimeter between what you know and what you don't know grows. That is, there's more beach around the island, more points of contact between the known and the unknown. As you come to know him better, the more you realize there's so much you don't know. The incarnation of Jesus is a great mystery. And the incarnation is as mysterious as the triune God himself. It is as mysterious as the Trinity. Now, there's a sentence here that is difficult to understand. And I'm probably not going to be making it any easier when I tell you what the Latin phrase for this is. <laughs> but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Um, You'll note there in section 7, <clears throat> where it begins, uh, yet by reason of the unity of the person. See that? All right. That, this next part is what I want you to focus on. That, that which is proper to one nature, that is either the divine nature or the human nature, that which is proper to the divine nature, let's say, is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. You say, the divines have completely lost me at that point. What are they talking about? The theological term for this is communicatio idiomat. I'll spell it for you, just in case you're on jeopardy one night. <laughs> I'll take theology for 400, Alex. <laughs> communicatio idiomatum. That is C-O-M-M. U-N-I-C-A-T-I-O, communicatio. And then the second word, idiomatum, I-D-I-O-M-A-T-U-M, I-D-I-O-M-A-T-U-M. All right, so what does this mean? What it is saying is simply this, whatever is true of either nature, if it's true of the divine nature or whether it's true of the human nature, it will always be true of Jesus himself. So is Christ, for example, omniscient? Yes, in his divine nature. The divine nature of Jesus is infinite. 
right? He is God, and therefore he is infinite in his understanding, in his divine nature. That which is true of his divine nature thus is true of him in his person. Is his human nature infinite? Uh, excuse me, is, his, is, his, uh, omnis- is he omniscient in his human nature? No. Okay. But, so is he finite in his understanding, in, in his person? Yes. Because it is true of his human nature. If it is true, again, relying on Dr. Van Dixhorn, if it is true about Christ's humanity, it is true about his person. If it is true about Christ's deity, it is true of his person. But what is true of one nature does not mean it's true of the other nature. So what is true of his divine nature, namely his omniscience, is not true of his human nature. How many of you have I lost? (laughs) I'll try and say it one more time. Whatever is true of one of his natures, he has two natures, it is always true of him as a person. Whatever is true of one nature does not mean that it is therefore true of his other nature. He is always omniscient in his divine nature. He is never omniscient in his human nature. He is always omniscient in his person. Again, this is what makes the incarnation so challenging, isn't it? These are hard things to understand. We have to understand, Dr. Van Dixhorn says, for example, Jesus' human nature um, did not exist in eternity past. Christ has always been the eternal Son of God, very God of very God, with the Father in the beginning. But when did Christ become a human being? He became a human being. He added to that divine nature a human nature at the incarnation. When the Holy Spirit conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary and he was born of her yet without sin. His human nature, and this is why, for example, sometimes you won't hear me talk about Jesus when speaking of Christ in the Old Testament. I I tend to reserve the name Jesus for that name that was designated to him After the incarnation, I will speak of Christ because he's always been the eternal son in the Old Testament. But he, you shall call him Jesus when? When he become a man. Now, if that isn't hard enough, sorry, but we got to deal with what's in the confession here. The confession goes on to say, however... Sometimes when you read your Bible, though, sometimes the Bible uses language that, if you will, cross-pollinates these two natures. So that, for example, look at Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Acts chapter 20, and verse 28. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. The Apostle Paul, he's talking to the elders at Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem. And notice what the Apostle Paul says here to the elders. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock 
among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Then he says, to shepherd the church of who? Of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Notice the cross-pollination here that the scripture is using. It is the church of God, which he purchased of his own blood. Now, does God have blood? No. What is going on here? He is speaking here, of course, secondly, of the human nature of Christ. So sometimes, even though theologically, we are to understand that what is true of one nature of Christ is not always true of the other nature of Christ. Nevertheless, what the Westminster Confession is trying to say is, your Bible, though, sometimes will speak in these terms. Look at 1 John, I'll show you one more. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. We know love by this, that he, that is speaking of of God in the context, uh, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Commentators say that here he was speaking of God, but we of course know it is God in Christ here. But did God die on the cross? No. Who died on the cross? Jesus died on the cross, we could say. And we know it was the human nature of Christ. Remember, that which is true of one nature is true of his person. But that which is true of one nature, namely the human nature of Jesus dying, is not true of what? It is not true of the divine nature. That God did not die. Okay? That's what the confession here is trying to communicate. And I know that's complicated. And we could talk later after church if you want, if you, if you got questions or, or confused. Let me move on to the final paragraph here. And this is a, a simple one that we can all understand. Is the heat on in this church building? <laughs> or is there air conditioning here? Somebody want to check the air conditioning? Thank you. The third section here, section eight, is the mediatorial application of Christ's work to your present life. That is, to put it simply, Jesus who has died for you will see to it that the benefits of all that he has died for are applied to you. You know, John Murray wrote a book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Why did he title that book that way? Because he was trying to show here that Christ, as our mediator, has accomplished our salvation once and forever on the cross. But now that Christ is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, he is nevertheless applying that which he accomplished to you and to me and to everybody else who are part of God's people in our present life. How does Jesus apply as our mediator 
all that he died for on the cross? Well, he does so here, as the confession says, in several ways. Number one is Jesus prays for you. He, he makes intercession for you. Listen again to what the confession says. To all those for whom Christ hath purchased redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same. And then they say, making intercession for them. So the first thing that Jesus does is he prays for you. You remember, boys and girls, Peter? You remember on the night in which Jesus was arrested and betrayed and and Jesus warned Peter that Satan has asked for permission to sift you. But what did he say to Peter? Peter, don't worry. I have prayed for you. And of course, Peter did succumb to those temptations. But how is it that Peter repented and turned back to the Lord after denying the Lord publicly three times, whereas Judas did not return back to the Lord after betraying him? Partly because Jesus said, Peter, I have prayed for you. Jesus, who would die for the sins of Peter on that cross, would also pray for Peter that Peter would turn from his denial of the Lord. Secondly, not only does Jesus pray for us, but Jesus sends us the Holy Spirit. After Jesus is raised from the dead and Jesus ascends after 40 days, into heaven, what does he tell the disciples? He says, stay in Jerusalem. Why? Because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he is going to apply the benefits of my salvation. That which I accomplished, that which I purchased on the cross, is going to be applied to you. Christ has paid in full for our salvation. But Christ will see to it that your salvation is not only purchased, but guaranteed and applied to your daily life. How does Jesus apply the benefits of his work on the cross to you today? How does he do it tomorrow? Not only does he pray for you, but he does so through the word and by the way of the Holy Spirit. If you go back to Romans again, chapter 8, in Romans chapter 8, In both verse 9 and in verse 14, we have these two verses. Romans 8, verse 9. I'll read verse 9 first. Romans 8, 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. That is, you've been born of the Spirit. You're no longer in the sin nature. No longer in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed, what? The Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So if, if Christ has died for your sins, he will see to it that he sends the Holy Spirit into your life. And then verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You see it there. And then one more thing and we close here. And the final thing that we see is that Jesus will see to it that all his and your enemies are conquered and vanquished. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. There are other passages we can look at, but this one will suffice. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul speaks about the resurrection, 
that is going to come at the end of history, he, he tells us that until that time, Jesus is where? He's on his throne. He's, what is he doing on the throne? Is he taking a vacation? He's governing. He's ruling. He's reigning. All human history is under his control. And notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25. And he, that is Jesus Christ, must reign. Now this is before the resurrection. This isn't in the millennium. This, 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 is, this is now, after the ascension. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Christ will take care of all the enemies of God's church. Because why? Because Jesus has died for the church. Jesus has shed his blood for the church to purchase salvation for the church. He will not abandon the church in history. He will see to it that all the enemies of the church, all those who have been persecuting the church for the thousands of years, will ultimately be vanquished. Reading here in verse 26, the last enemy that faces us is death. And how will Christ abolish death? He will abolish death by way of your future resurrection. Death is, as we said a few weeks ago, not natural. Death is unnatural. Death is the consequence of sin. And Jesus is going not only to deal with sin, but all the consequences of sin. And he will deal with the final consequence of sin, namely death itself, when he returns in power and glory. He will raise us from the dead, and we will be raised in uh, a glorified body, enabled to spend eternity with him.